going, guys? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Known Unknowns. I'm Carly. And I'm Harry. And this is the weird podcast you listen to. This is your podcast. Your podcast. I like it. The people's podcast. This is the podcast of the people. Podcasting to the people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we kind of have a lot to cover here mm-hmm. um, and you have a couple things you want to discuss so what's what's number one well first i wanted to talk about how as a podcast you know we're trying to always be in on the latest trends and stuff and the newest things in popular culture and the the art world and stuff so we've decided to jump on the nft bandwagon um and so we well not exactly well so we ha- I, I don't understand what NFTs are or how they work, but we've done the next best thing, and we've in, we've installed a twelve-ton coal-burning furnace in the studio, which we have been running nonstop um, for the past uh, couple of days now, and we plan to keep it going whenever we re- record a podcast or release one. Um, you know, the, the the soot has been a big problem for us just in our daily lives and stuff, and we've we've been we've been hacking and coughing a lot. Um, We've we've turned the whole studio into just a black hole at this point. But this is the lengths that we go to to keep up to date on the latest tech in media for you, our fans. What? I didn't understand <laughs> any of that. And I want you all to know that I didn't understand any of it. What does any of that mean? So... As I said, I don't fully understand. Okay, it. never mind. We're not getting into this. Where's our Where's our studio go? Which room is our studio going to be in? The craft room. I don't know. Probably. Mm. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. Sorry. We're whenever we Harry, stop what? touching the table. You gotta stop touching the table, sir. I'm sorry. You're You're wiggling the microphone, and I bet they can hear it. I bet they can even hear more you telling me not to touch the table. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, cuz right now our studio is just our bedroom. <laughs> mhm. And the coal smoke has been really making it hard to hard to sleep. To sleep. Mhm. Yeah. Um but yeah. So we might need to like bulldoze a rainforest or something to to f- make room for for the new studio if we're going to have this big thing in it. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, well, when we have um a couple extra rooms over the summer, in after the summer, um we're trying to figure out where to put the recording studio. But that doesn't really matter cuz um it doesn't really affect you guys. So. No, that has no bearing whatsoever on any of this. No. I mean, it... I'm going to say craft room though. Okay. We're going to have an office and a craft room. Right. I'm gonna say craft room, less traffic noise. Mm-hmm. It's not by the road, right? And easier to soundproof because there's only one window, not two windows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, that works. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Sorry, now we've got I that bit that of business we, uh, out of the way. Wanted to discuss that. Okay. Um, some other current events mm-hmm. in this week. Um, I was I'm going to talk about um, a woman named Marilyn Hartman, who 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 I found out about this week. Serial what? What is she? So sorry, I saw the article. Uh, and now I'm curious. <laughs> so earlier this week, um, at the O'Hare International Airport uh, of Chicago, 
the yeah. the city where we're that's where we live broadcasting this from yeah uh live to you all across the world uh-huh um a a a a 69 year old woman was arrested um for uh, attempting to board a plane without a uh, boarding pass or uh, security clearance or anything and as it turns out uh, she is something of a serial stowaway. Yeah. Um, Wait, no, I saw this story. I didn't read it, but I saw it. She has been involved in at least 22 similar episodes, um, though according to her, it's uh, maybe over 30 um, times where she has attempted or successfully managed to uh, get on a plane and uh, fly somewhere without uh, you know, having a ticket or having security credentials or anything. How? Well, um, so she, this week. That uh, is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this week she was caught because she w- was being, um, she had been caught like a couple years ago and arrested. And so she was being electronically monitored right now. And so people, so the police noticed when her, uh, electronic monitoring device was got, heading toward O'Hare airport. Um, <laughs> Um, that's how they caught her this time. Uh, but uh, let's see here. In 2018, Ms. Hartman sneaked onto a British Airways flight and traveled to Heathrow Airport, oh where she was apprehended by customs officials. Um, <laughs> where does she see. live uh, permanently? She is f- from, I think she's from like San Francisco. Okay. But she has been arrested a couple of times at O'Hare. <laughs> um, Great. Uh, for her first O'Hare arrest came in 2015 when she was charged with misdemeanor criminal trespassing on state land. She has since been involved in eight other incidents at Chicago area airports. Um, let's see here. Uh, in the CBS2 report, Ms. Hartman says that she was in a, quote, in a depressed state of mind when she took the flights. Uh, she explained that she would evade security by following someone. They would be carrying, like, a blue bag. And the next thing I know, I get into the TSA line, and TSA lets me through, she said. They think I'm with the guy with the blue bag. Oh, my gosh. Um. So, But according to her, uh, her lawyer, she is... Where is this? Uh, she ha- According to her Laura quote, she has a mental illness that was triggered by something out of her control. The paper quoted uh, her lawyer as saying um, that she, she was triggered to uh, go and try to stow away on a plane by seeing on TV the, the news report about her. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. I just thought that was fun. We, we talked about one. Well, yeah, that's who I thought it was. The guy we talked about earlier, like when I just saw it in passing, like the headline, I was mm-hmm. like. Is this guy at it again? He's back at it again. And I love it. He wasn't no. content to live in O'Hare for months on end. He also needed to get on a plane. But no, this this woman has like successfully like flown across the country and internationally um, without uh, having permission hate, to board an airplane. I hate that. You don't like her? No. Only because I deal with these kinds of people at work. They try to, like, latch. I dealt with that today. Some lady who all had already, like, just gotten done yelling at me um, <laughs> for the line not moving fast enough. Uh-huh. Um, she totally just uh, came up from the back of the line, latched onto a group and said, I'm with them, and just <laughs> confidently walked in. And I was like, ma'am, no, you're not. And she just walked in and met her husband inside. 
and I didn't stop her. Because what am I supposed to do? You didn't like tackle her or anything, or uh, no? Throw throw something. No, no, that's not my job. <laughs> yeah, that's no one's job. There, that. I don't get paid exactly. I don't get paid enough to do that. But really, I was mad, and I'm still seething about it. Like I'm just, I'm like, lady. She had already yelled at me, and then she's like, I'm with them. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you're not. And just like wow. walked in. She didn't even stop. She just w- started walking through, and then she's like, I'm with them. She knew that, well, she came up to yell at you to just, like, wear down the last bit of, like, self-respect that you had. And she knew after that that she could just do anything she wanted. When she yelled at me, she didn't have a mask on. And I was really upset. <laughs> and then she tried, like, walking in further to yell at me. And I was like, no, <laughs> put your mask on. She had it hanging from one ear. She uh-huh. had it, like, dangling. And I'm like, could you just put that over your face before you start screaming at me i would really appreciate that yeah that's cool yeah that mm. happened a lot today <laughs> it's been a rough day it was a rough day at work but when is it not i feel like i come on here every day every freaking that... monday and you hear it was a rough day at work today yes <laughs> <laughs> that's a rough day that, every day is a rough day at work in the pandemic. That's that's quite true. For anyone who works with people, with customers. Yes, particularly in that case. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, next thing I want to talk about, also pretty quick, just a, just a thing that I found out about this week and piqued my interest. So okay. I wanted to learn more about it. Cool. So sometime in the second half of 1976, all over the world, uh, shortwave radio opportunity. Uh, shortwave radio. Wait, oper- this is like your topic. Yeah, it's it's really short though. Oh, okay. I didn't- yeah, folks. Okay, so um, I've been. We did have two weeks. I'll admit it. We had two <laughs> weeks to get things done. Uh, you know the time. It just slips away. I'll say. Uh, and I, I, I did start my research like three or four days ago. Um, and I have the topic this week um it's long because i watched lots of stuff about it i did lots of research and i spent lots of time on it harry didn't i did not do anything so he has his short little topic barely i don't know (laughs) i'm just saying he had a couple small things to talk about but i have the main story so stick around for the main event Yeah, just just next week. Harry will have the long topic, and he'll have one week to do it. That's right. Okay, you'll have the long topic next week. I I know. Okay. Well, I I had two long topics in a row. Good for you. Okay. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Continue. Yeah, I'm lazy. Okay, just go. Sometime in the second half of 1976, all over the world. Shortwave radio operators simultaneously found their signals interrupted by a repetitive tapping sound that sounded something like this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, where is it? You're gonna play it? Shit, there it is. Got it. Yeah, I'm gonna play it real quick. Can you hear that, folks? That's weird. (laughs) That is. Oh, man. Oh. The I didn't realize this before, but the little Wikipedia like media player thing for the sound it has captions for this, and it just says tuk 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 tuk. Oh my god! 
It does. That's <laughs> really funny. That's very good. Found okay. something. So, so just imagine you're you're tinkering with your little ham radio late at night, and all of a sudden you get assaulted in the ears with a tuk 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 tuk. Yeah, I can. It was soon nicknamed the woodpecker for reasons you might imagine. Yeah, it did sound like a pecker. Yes, it did. One time when we first started, it was like the first day. Of dating. Uh-huh. Like, we had officially dated, started dating. Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't like pigeons. I don't like their peckers. And he, Harry was so mad that I said that out in public. He was like, Carly, don't say that. And I'm what? like, it's a pecker. <laughs> I don't like their peckers. And he was like, Carly, stop. And I was like, just trying to keep going. And he was so mad that I kept saying the word peckers in public. That doesn't sound like me. Oh, yeah, it was. All right. I don't I remember, remember it. it. I do. All right. Because well, it was traumatizing. I was, I'm sorry. I apologize. I was mad. I was like, do I really want to date this guy? He was mad that I kept saying peckers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being You don't remember this? Uncom- no, not at all. I, maybe I was more offended that you didn't like pigeons. No, you were mad that you were like, st- you were really embarrassed. You were like, stop. Stop yeah, it. I get embarrassed in public places very easily. Yeah, trust me. If I do anything in public, he's like, stop. I'm scared of strangers. He goes, uh, no, 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 stop. And he, then later on, I'm like, why are you embarrassed of me? And he's like, I'm not. I, I don't I'm like, tell yeah, you, you to are. stop doing stuff. I just. Sometimes. I'm quiet. Yeah, anyway, continue. <laughs> All right. The listeners are going to hate you after this. They're going to be like, he's abusive. They already do. He he tells her what to do, which it's true, folks. What? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. But he is embarrassed of me in public, I'll say. I'm I'm not embarrassed of you. I'm just uncomfortable. When I do stuff. When I'm (laughs) in public. Okay. Whatever. We'll argue about it later. Yes, we will. Shut up. Continue. Anyway, the woodpecker. What both, about it? Both NATO and amateur ham radio operators begin uh, working quickly tri- to triangulate the mysterious signal's origin. Triangulate? Yeah. Okay. Soon, its nickname was amended to the Russian woodpecker. As it came <laughs> from the, within the Soviet Union a few kilometers southwest of the Ukrainian city of Chernobyl. So it's a real bird? No. Oh, okay. It was like a... They thought, they just called it that. Yeah, it's just, it's not because it sounds like sounds woodpecker. Sounds like a Russian We don't woodpecker. know what it is. We're just going to call it a woodpecker, and it's coming from the USSR. Okay. You've, not technically, not Russia, but Ukraine, but same, it's close enough. Okay. Um, but answering that question just led to more. There was much speculation as to its purpose. Some suggested that it was part of a Soviet weather control plot. Others went further and claimed that it was a mind control conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I would guess. Yeah? Or maybe its purpose was just to jam Western broadcasts across radio frequencies. Okay. But for 12 years, up until 1989, the signal continued to pop up on various frequencies without warning. 
mm-hmm. uh, interrupting everything from commercial aviation communications to television signals. Hmm. It became such a nuisance that some receivers on amateur radios began including automatic woodpecker blankers in their design. Um, <laughs> it continued even after the uh, the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, despite, mm-hmm. even though it's still located within the Cher- Chernobyl exclusion zone. Okay. Um, in the late 80s, um, woodpecker transmissions began to tail off, and in 1989, they ceased altogether. It wasn't until the fall of the Soviet Union and end of the Cold War that the signal's purpose was confirmed. Oh, we know. We do know what it was. Okay. Uh, many experts and amateur enthusiasts had recognized the signal as over-the-horizon radar as an over-the-horizon radar system, um, and they were right. Uh, it came from a massive transmitter, 700 meters long and 150 meters high, um, that the Soviets codenamed 5H32 West, and NATO referred to as Steelwork. Uh, the receiver for the system was located in another town about 60 kilometers away from the uh, the main tower. Um, and its purpose was uh, to be a an early warning system for a an American nuclear missile launch <laughs> at Russia. Um, and they would have... So this is like their warning call? No, it was it was like a radar system. They were sending out the What? So they would send out it's the transmitter sends out a radio signal like a mm-hmm. like a signal and then they it's picked up again by another uh receiver and then they can tell it it's a it's a radar thing where so like if it the signal bounces off of a an incoming missile or something they will know they will they will know that'll be picked up by I, I i so so radar works you send out radars you send out radio signals and it bounces off of stuff and you can tell by the time that it comes back to the receiver how far away like different objects are and stuff and so this was a a very big long distance radar system basically so that it could pick up an incoming missile from like far far away oh yeah Hmm. not that cool huh oh (laughs) that was the story that was yeah but okay. i mean it's still i mean they still it's never been uh a confirmed exactly they've never like said specifically why it was taken offline um in the 80s hmm. um i mean it's assumed that it's just because the other forms of long range missile detection became uh known became uh, more widespread but it looks really cool like there's a ton of it's it's so it's within the Chernobyl exclusion zone. That's part of the transmitter. It's just this oh giant gosh. thing. Um, there's another picture of it. It's it's really huge. Um, yeah, they actually used huge. they actually used this in the uh, the Divergent films. Yeah, um, you know, it that I knew as it the looked wall familiar. That goes around. I was like, mm-hmm. this looks like something i've seen before yeah. i mean it is a really <gasps> wild like that is it that is exact yes oh my god yeah they use that as like the fence or the wall of yeah, yeah. fence yeah i mm-hmm, guess mm-hmm. those and it, it it is a really wild like piece of like sci-fi did you ever read divergent machinery. no i saw the first movie the movies were so bad i, I didn't watched read the, books. the first movie didn't see any others i read those books so fast I read them so fast, and Mm -hmm. I liked them when I read them. I don't know if there's problems with it now. I remember liking it when I read it when I was, like, 13. Uh Um, 
So if don't don't come at me if there's problem. I don't remember it whatsoever, but I do remember seeing the first one in theaters. So yeah. Yeah. And then it was terrible. And then everyone said the second one sucked. So I was like, eh, I don't want to waste my money on that to go see it. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't really have any. It's just, it's been featured in a lot of like uh science fiction stuff and very sci-fi chernobyl media and stuff as a really as a as an interesting cool looking thing yeah and a mysterious thing from the zone yeah Hmm. i don't know just look that up guys it's it's neat yeah it is cool all right i'm done okay (laughs) well i'm gonna get started then because it's a long one folks oh yeah are you ready for it I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. Okay, great. I think all of you, I think a lot of you will have at least heard of this. Um, okay. It's pretty popular, the, the story. A lot of people know about it because it's so weird and interesting. So I'm talking about um, the Summerton Man. Hmm. Yeah. So my sources, <laughs> what? Nothing. I'm excited about this yeah, story, no, me so too. I'm ready to get into it. My sources are smithsonianmag.com, abc.net, uh, Daily Mail, uh, yeah, Daily Mail, and then I watched a documentary called Missing Pieces. That's the main documentary on this uh, topic. And then I watched various like YouTube documentaries, like 20, 30-minute long ones, Um I read a couple other articles. I didn't pull directly from them. I'm so, so citing. <laughs> I am telling you the ones that I pulled directly from, but I'm sure there's others that I missed that I will. Yeah, there's a lot on this topic, so okay, there's plenty of information out there if you want to read more, but I'm going to tell you a lot of it. Lay it on me. Okay. So, on December 1st, 1948. Wait, do you know this story? I've... I, well, I know I've watched one thing about it with you, but I, I, I don't remember. Yeah, it was like a twenty-five minute long thing, and this this deserves. I, there probably are books. It's it's wild. Okay. Okay. On December first, nineteen forty-eight, at six thirty a.m., mm-hmm. the police were contacted after the body of a man was discovered on Summerton Beach near Glenelg, Glenelg. About 6.8 miles southwest of Adelaide, South Australia. Okay. So we're in Australia, friends. The two men who found the body and reported it were on a morning horseback ride on the beach. They were uh, training jockeys, the horse guys. That's cool. Um, Yeah, so they were out on a morning horseback ride, and apparently they, like, passed him, and they're like, oh, sleeping man, and then they... (laughs) When they were coming back, they saw him again, and then they were like, maybe we should check on this guy. (laughs) So they were the ones who reported it. Okay. So he was lying back with his head resting against the sea wall with his legs extended and his feet crossed. Uh, it, It was believed the man had died while sleeping. An unlit cigarette was on the right collar of his coat. A search of his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, hmm. a bus ticket from the city that may have that may not have been used, um, a U.S. manufactured narrow aluminum comb. Apparently, I heard there were 
two combs found in his pocket, um, mm. a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, an Army Club cigarette packet, which contained seven cigarettes of a different brand. Uh, different from the one on his coat. Yeah, different from the one... So it was an Army Club cigarette packet, and inside the cigarettes were oh. Kensitas. Oh, okay. Kensita. Army, okay. Got yeah. It. Army Club was the brand, and the different brand of cigarette inside the packet. Mm-hmm. Weird. Which is weird, that's right? Cur- that's That is weird. Mm-hmm. And a quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. Okay. All the tags on his clothes had been removed, mm. and he had no wallet or any form of ID on him. Hmm. Curious. Right. A, a body without an ID or wallet, that's normal. All the tags removed from the clothes, that's very strange. What does that mean, that, Harry? I don't know what it means. It could oh, mean anything. You don't know? Okay. When I hear that the tags have all been removed from someone's clothing, well, we'll, we'll get into this later. I mean, it either means that the person wearing the clothes didn't want the clothes to be identified, or the person who killed the person, the body... Didn't want the body to be identified by the clothes. Well, apparently they were... Well, okay, we'll get into it. There's more. Okay. Okay, there's so much this story. It gets wilder and wilder. So this is weird, but it just gets weirder. Like, okay. this is the coolest case I've ever read. It is about a dead body, so I feel bad. But this is cool. <laughs> okay. It makes a good story. All right. Witnesses who came forward said that on the evening of uh, November 30th, they had seen an individual resembling the dead man lying on his back in the same spot and position where the body was later found. A couple who saw him at around 7 p.m. In this documentary, they interview these people, Mm -hmm. these people who saw him on the beach. They were on the beach that night or something. Uh Um, Noted that they saw him extend his right arm to its fullest extent and then... Drop it limply. Sorry, hang on. Ugh, sorry. Um, yeah, so at 7 p.m. the night before, they said that they saw this guy laying on the beach, and they just saw him extend his arm and then drop it limply. Another couple who saw him from 7.30 to 8 p.m., during which time the streetlights had come on, recounted that they did not see him move during the half an hour in which he was in view. So they were just, like, sitting on a bench right before mm-hmm. the beach, like, looking out at the beach. Mm-hmm. Then they saw this guy laying on the beach, and mm-hmm. he wasn't moving. Right. Um, let's see. Although they did have the impression that his position had changed. Okay, so they, they didn't see him move, but yeah. it seemed like he moved while they were there. Yeah. Although they commented between themselves that it was odd he was not uh, reacting to the mosquitoes surrounding his face, hmm. uh, they had thought it more likely that he was drunk or asleep and did not investigate further. Sure. Yeah. If I saw him, I'd be like, is some drunk guy or some sleepy man on the beach? Like, he's sleeping on the beach. I would not assume dead guy. Yeah, I mean, Especially neither. if I saw him move once, I'd be like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I'd probably be a little, I'd be a little worried that it was a dead yeah, but I wouldn't do anything about it. I would say, none of my business, and I'd move on. Yeah, no, I, I don't know what I would do. I'd say, yeah, he's probably sleeping. Yeah, I'd say, <laughs> Harry, we have to go check on him. And you'd be like, he's just sleeping, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the witnesses told the police she observed a man looking down at the sleeping man from the top of the steps that led to the beach. Witnesses said the body was in the same position when the police viewed it. Okay. So they all said from when they last saw the body, mm-hmm. the the police saw it in the same position. So no one had moved it from that night to 6.30 a.m. 
Mm-hmm. Another witness. Oh, wait. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Uh, do I have this at the end of this? Actually, I'm not going to say that. Okay. According to the pathologist John Burton Cleland, the man was of Britisher, Britisher appearance and thought to be aged about 40 to 45. He was in, quote, top physical condition, unquote. Mm-hmm. He was five feet tall, 11 inches with gray eyes, fair to ginger colored hair, slightly gray around the temples, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape, like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes. So they were like deformed, like his feet pinched. Pointy. Yeah. Um, And pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet. Mm -hmm. He was dressed in a white t-shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, brown trousers, socks, and shoes, a brown knitted pullover, and fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket of reportedly, quote, American tailoring. Mm Mm-hmm. All labels on his clothes had been removed, and he had no hat, which was unusual for 1948. They, I don't know, or wallet. He didn't have a wallet either. He was clean-shaven and carried no identification, which led police to believe he had committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Finally, his dental records were not able to be matched to any known person. Hmm. That's weird. That's weird to me. That is interesting. Um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, you'll probably tell me how hard they looked. I'm sure they looked very hard. To... Yeah. They couldn't find any yeah no dental records of this guy this guy's got... weird i think that's strange mm-hmm. his, his teeth have never been seen before yeah i guess not okay the body reached the royal adelaide hospital three hours later there dr john barkley bennett put the time of death at no earlier than 2 a.m noted the likely cause of death as heart failure oh my god so all those people who saw him at like 7 p.m He's probably still alive. He's probably still alive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, which makes Mm -hmm. sense if they all kind of saw him shifting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Noted that likely cause of death as heart failure and added that he suspected poisoning. Mm. The doctor noticed one trouser pocket had been neatly repaired with an unusual variety of orange thread. And I only note this now. Like, these are what he noted when he did his look uh-huh. down of the right. guy so those were the things he concluded poison 2 a.m odd orange thread repaired his repaired pocket, his pocket. A- an odd variety of orange thread. yeah we'll get into it later it's not much but it'll it adds to the identity of this man okay so that's why i'm mentioning it here got it By the time a full autopsy was carried out a day later, the police had already exhausted their best leads as to the dead man's identity. Mm -hmm. And the results of the postmortem did little to enlighten them. It revealed that the corpse's pupils were smaller than normal and unusual. And, okay, were smaller than normal, and it was unusual that a dribble of spittle (laughs) had run down the side of the man's mouth as he lay, and that, quote, he was probably unable to swallow it. Unquote. Uh-huh. His spleen, meanwhile, was strikingly large and firm, about three times the normal size. Mm. And the liver was dis- distended, distended mm-hmm. with congested blood. So there was internal bleeding. Got it. Yeah. Okay. In the man's stomach, pathologist John Dwyer found the remains of his last meal, a pasty, 
Sorry, I, I want to say this. I want a girl with a small pupils and a large, large spleen. spleen. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not that, that quick on the though. uptake, but I wanted to throw that in there. It was a little late, <laughs> but okay. I got it in. <laughs> so what was his last meal, Harry? A pasty. Yeah, I don't really know what that is. A little pie. Cake yeah, a little thing, right? pie kind of thing. And a further quantity of blood. So just a lot of internal bleeding. That too suggested poisoning. Mm. Though there was nothing to show that the poison had been in the food. Now the dead man's peculiar peculiar behavior on the beach, slumping in a suit, raising and dropping his right arm, seemed less like drunkenness than it did a lethal dose of something taking slow effect. Mm. But repeated tests on both blood and organs by an expert chemist failed to reveal the faintest trace of poison. Quote, I was astounded that he found nothing, and unquote, Dwyer admitted at the inquest. In fact, no cause of death was ever found. And they still know it's not natural, but they don't necessarily, there's no, like, 100% proof that this is how this guy died. Curious. Yeah. So we'll get into the, it's it's pretty obvious what it is, but it, there's really no way to prove it, um, okay. which is basically poison, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll get into it. Okay. The body displayed other peculiar, peculiarities, peculiar... <laughs> The dead man's calf muscles were high and very well developed. Although in his late 40s, he had the legs of an athlete. His toes, meanwhile, were oddly wedge-shaped. One expert who gave evidence at the inquest noted, quote, I have not seen the tendency of calf muscles so pronounced as in this case. His feet were rather striking, suggesting that, this is my own assumption, that he had been in the habit of wearing high-heeled and pointed shoes. Perhaps, okay, end quote. Perhaps another expert witness hazarded the man, the dead man, had been a ballet dancer. That's the main theory that he'd. That he was a, a ballet, ballet dancer. Because his feet were feet. deformed like the uh, point of the ballet toe, uh-huh. uh, shoe. And he was really athletic looking and he had really, really pronounced calf muscles that a ballet dancer. He had like the body of a ballet dancer. So they thought he was like a professional dancer, maybe. Okay. Or like a ballet, or he at least did ballet. Stuff. Or wore high heels. Yeah, a fit guy a lot. Who likes to wear high heels. Yeah. Um, which I guess as a ballet dancer, he would be wearing heeled shoes sometimes too. Right. Or as like a dancer. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Heels. And as a ballet dancer, he'd be on point a lot. That's what, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the dancer makes most sense to me. Okay. That's what a lot of people think, but, you know, okay. we don't know. Well, well, we'll get into what I think later. Okay. All this left the Adelaide coroner, Thomas Cleland, with a real puzzle on his hands. The only practical solution, he was informed by an eminent professor, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, was that a very rare poison had been used. One that decomposed very early after death, leaving no trace. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The only poisons capable of, capable of this were so dangerous and deadly that Hicks would not even say their names aloud in open court. Instead, he passed Cleland a scrap of paper on which he had written the names of two possible candidates, mm-hmm. which are... <laughs> Which are revealed, <laughs> which is sad. I don't even know audience, how to say it. Digitalis and strophanthin. All right. Now you hear that, folks? If you're thinking of poisoning someone, this is what you want to get. Uh-huh. Hicks suspected the latter. Strophanthin is a rare glycoside. Yeah. 
It's a rare glycoside derived from the seeds of some African plants. Historically, it was used by a little-known Somali tribe to poison arrows. Okay. So, yeah, so the poison wouldn't be... It, it yeah, it mm-hmm. leaves very okay. early on. I see. You die, so. and then it, there's no trace. I see. Well, then that sounds promising. Mm-hmm. Uh, more baffled than ever now, the police continued their investigation. A full set of fingerprints was taken and circulated throughout Australia and then throughout the English-speaking world, and no one could identify them. People from all over Adelaide were escorted to the mortuary in the hope they could give the corpse a name. Some thought they knew the man from photos published in the newspapers. Others were distraught relatives of missing persons. But no one ended up recognizing the body when they went to see it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Oh, okay. So it gets more interesting from here. All Isn't right. this wild though? Mm-hmm. It like is this is weird. Like it's just this guy. We don't know how he died. Okay, mm-hmm. but we're gonna find more information here. Right. Well, there's lots of points in this story where it's like, here's more information. Mm-hmm. But here we we get another break in the case. I'll say. Okay. By January January 11th, the South Australia Police had investigated and dismissed pretty much every lead they had. The investigation was now widened in an attempt to locate any abandoned personal possessions, such as left luggage, that mm-hmm. might suggest that the dead man had come from out of state. Right. Um, that meant uh, checking every hotel, dry cleaner, lost property office, and railway station for miles around. And it did produce results. Interesting. On the 12th, detectives sent were sent to the main railway station in Adelaide and were shown a brown suitcase that had been deposited in the cloakroom there on November 30th. Oh. The day before the man was found dead on the beach. Right. The staff could remember nothing about the owner, and the case's contents were not much more revealing. Okay. Uh, But the case did contain a reel of orange thread identical to that used to repair the dead man's trousers. So Uh. that is what made it clear that this suitcase Mm -hmm. is this dead man's stuff. Right. So it does get weird. Um, uh, So the thread found was not even sold in Australia but it was made and sold in America. Okay. So he's most likely from America or he had recently traveled right. there. But painstaking care had been applied to remove practically every trace of the owner's identity. Hmm. The case bore no stickers or markings and labels had been torn off from one side. Hmm. Um, the tags were missing from all but three items of the clothing inside. Mm-hmm. These bore the name Keen, K-E-A-N, Okay. Or T Keen, T dot K E A N E. So Keen was spelled differently. Two different Keens. Mm-hmm. But it proved impossible to tr- to trace anyone of that name, and the police concluded. An Adelaide newspaper reported that someone had purposely left them on, knowing that the dead man's name was not Keen with mm. or without an E. Because uh, why would right if you're gonna take if you're gonna little... like mark your stuff with your name. Yeah. So it was apparently two pieces of clothing and one laundry bag that I he see. had in his, like it was a bag that uh-huh. he would put laundry in that had Keen on it. I see. With an E. Mm-hmm. And I think the clothes had Keen. 
With, I, a, with, with no e. e. Uh-huh. Super weird, right? It is weird. Mm-hmm. The remainder of the contents were equally inscrutable. There was a stencil kit of the sort used by the third officer on merchant ships responsible for the stenciling of cargo. Okay. A table knife with the haft cut down. A coat stitched using a feather stitch unknown in Australia. Hmm. A tailor identified the stitchwork as American in origin, uh-huh. suggesting that the coat and perhaps its wear had traveled during the war years. Hmm. But searchers, but searches of shipping and immigration records from across the country again produce no likely leads. So this guy just doesn't exist in any of the systems, which right. is strange. And even in a suitcase, no ID, no wallet, no identification whatsoever. All tags right. are removed from everything. Yeah. So he so. doesn't want anyone to know who he is. Right. That's the thing. Because mm-hmm. the killer obviously didn't remove the tags. They were all removed from the clothes inside his suitcase, too. Right. The police had brought in another expert, Joe Cleland. Oh, wait. Oh, this is where it gets <laughs> super weird. Okay. Okay. There's okay, some... are you ready? Yes. Yes. Tell okay, me more. Okay, okay, okay. This is wild. Okay, so they had, like, nothing else to do, so they decided to bring in another expert. Uh-huh. Um... John Cleland, a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, to re-examine the corpse and Mm -hmm. the dead man's possessions. So they're like, let's get a fresh set of eyes Mm -hmm. on this. Yeah, you've been talking about him a little bit before, right? Quoting some stuff from him. Yes. But now, now he's coming in. Now we're meeting him for the first time. Yes. Okay. In April, four months after the discovery of the body, Cleland's search produced a final piece of evidence. So he got to see the body and the clothes he was wearing and okay. the things that were on his person and the stuff in the suitcase. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So all that. So yeah, he got to like look at everything. Right. And one that would prove to be the most baffling of all. Oh. Cleland discovered a small pocket sewn into the waistband of the dead man's trousers that he was wearing. Oh. When he was found. Okay. Previous examiners had missed it, and several accounts of the case have referred to it as a secret pocket, but it seems to have been intended to hold a fob watch. Mm-hmm. Instead, inside, I mean inside, tightly rolled, was a minute scrap of paper, and that he had to use tweezers to get inside and grab. The pocket was so small and the piece of paper was so tiny he couldn't get it in with his fingers. He couldn't wow. get it out with his fingers. Uh-huh. Which opened up, uh, proved to contain two words typeset in an elaborate printed script. Script. The phrase read, Tamam should. Oh. Or Tamam should. The scrap of paper discovered in a concealed pocket in the dead man's trousers. Tamam tamam should. T-A-M-A-M-S-H-U-D. Yes. Is a Persian phrase, and it means... It is ended. Interesting. Or like the end. Aha. Uh-huh. And this dead guy found on the beach had this rolled up inside a tiny little pocket in his pants. Weird. Crazy that he even found it. Yeah. But he did. No one found it. And then, uh, like, that's <laughs> crazy to yeah. me. And yeah. this opens up the whole case. Like, it's. Okay, we'll get okay. to it, but right. isn't that weird? That is weird. 
that's very weird. I don't have any tiny hidden pockets sewn into any of my pants yeah. that I know of. Maybe I do. Maybe they got stuff in them. Yeah. So they pretty much, I mean, that kind of for like uh, adds on to the suicide theory because mm-hmm. like he's dead in his pocket. He has a piece of paper that says this is the end or whatever right. at the end, you know, mm-hmm. which is weird. Yeah. That's weird. So Frank Kennedy, the police reporter for the Adelaide Advertiser, recognized the words as Persian mm-hmm. and telephoned the police to suggest they obtain a copy of a book of poetry, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, mm-hmm. but we're just going to say the Rubaiyat. This work, written in the 12th century, had become popular in Australia during the war years in a much-loved translation by Edward Fitzgerald. It existed in numerous conditions, but the usual uh, intricate police inquiries to libraries, publishers, and bookshops failed to find one that matched the fancy type. Mm-hmm. Um, like the fancy font. Right. Um, at least it was possible, however, to say that the words tam- uh, Tamim should or Tamin with an N should, as several newspapers misprinted. Mm-hmm. It's actually Tamim should. Okay. But yeah, uh, a mistake. Uh, yeah, in most, in a lot of the articles, you'll see that it's Tamin should, but uh-huh. it's Tamim, Tamim should. Uh, did come from um, the romantic reflections on life and mortality in the Rubaiyat. Okay. Uh, they were, in fact, the last words in most English translations. Aha. Uh-huh. Not surprisingly, because the phrase means it is ended. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so. so even in the English translation, it says Tamim should at the end. Okay. Taken at face value, this new clue suggested that the death might be a case of suicide. Mm-hmm. In fact, the South Australia police never did turn their missing person inquiries into a full-blown murder investigation. Mm-hmm. But the discovery took them no closer to identifying the dead man, and in the meantime, his body had begun to decompose. So arrangements were made for a burial... But, conscious uh, they were disposing of one of the few pieces of evidence they had, (laughs) the police first had the corpse embalmed and a cast taken of his head and upper torso. (laughs) They actually interview in this documentary the guy who did the cast. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um... So, after that, the body was buried, sealed under concrete in a plot of dry ground, specifically chosen in case it became necessary to exhume it. Mm -hmm. As late as 1978, flowers would be found at odd intervals on the grave, but no one could ascertain who had left them or why. Uh Okay. Any thoughts so far? Because we're going to get to some crazy stuff. Okay. So, I can see the suicide thing. I guess I can justify it as... They're an odd person who doesn't like labels on any of their possessions. They're just an odd person. And they Do you have uh, any theories they so like far? The Rubiot. Well Do you think it's suicide? No. I assume that there's some intrigue and stuff going on. I assume that this is far, far more complex than that. I think it's weird to poison yourself. Yeah, especially if it's a fairly slow acting slow one. acting point like no 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 no. yeah like a slow acting obscure poison mm-hmm. yeah i don't think it's a suicide 
So here's where the little scrap of paper comes into play even more. Okay. So this is why it's crazy that they even found this piece of paper, because yeah. this... There's more to there's, it. This, yeah. Okay. In July, eight months after the investigation had begun, the search for the right Rubaiyat from, like... Yeah. The, the Rubaiyat, because the Rubaiyat wasn't found right, originally, just the little piece of paper that gotta, was torn out of this copy of a, the Rubaiyat. But they got in, so they got to figure out what, what book is this torn out of. Yeah. And they couldn't find any that matched the same typeface. No, they yeah. couldn't find any, yeah, any, um, oh, what do you call it when you redo a book, uh, the same book? Editions, editions. They couldn't find any edition that like matched that font at the end. Uh-huh. So on the twenty third, a Glenelg man walked into the detective office in Adelaide with a copy of the book and a strange story. Mm. Earlier, or early the previous December, just after the discovery of the unknown body. Uh, This man had gone for a drive with his brother-in-law in in a car he kept parked a few hundred yards from Somerton Beach. Oh, damn. The brother-in-law had found a copy of the Rubaiyat lying on the floor of the rear seats of his brother's car, of his brother-in-law's car. Each man had silently assumed it belonged to the other, because neither of them owned this Rubaiyat that was lying on the floor of this car. Um... Weird. Uh, And the book had just sat in the glove compartment ever since. So when the newspapers ran articles Uh saying, we're looking for this Rubaiyat that has this word with this phrase torn out of it, um, the two men had gone back to take a closer look at their Rubaiyat that they were like, neither of us own this. It was just in the back of my car. So he had... He, his car was parked 200 whatever feet yards away from Somerton Beach where mm-hmm. the guy was found. Right. And he parked his car with his windows down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So then they found this copy of the Rubaiyat thrown in their back seat. Mm-hmm. And, and their car was parked there on what date? The day before. The day before. Okay. On or the, the day he was found? Early the previous December, just after the discovery of the unknown body, he had gone for a drive with his brother-in-law. So it was the day his body was found. Okay. It was found. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay, okay. So they took a closer look and they found that the part of the final page had been torn out together uh, with uh, <sighs> the final words in the book. So they went to the police with mm-hmm. this book. And Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean took a close look at the book almost at once. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So they found that the piece of paper fit perfectly in the back of this book. So this was the dead man's book. And he, okay, so he. So this was in possession of the dead man. Right. So he, he got the thing from this book. So he must have taken it fairly soon or from fairly recently from the book he would or maybe not maybe he just took it out a while ago and still had the book i guess but he threw and then he just threw the book in the back of a random car yeah or the killer did or the killer did i don't know why though or the killer had the book tore it out as like a little note left it in a little pocket and then threw out the but i'm assuming he had the book and threw it in however it ended up in this random guy's car yeah so Upon looking at this book, mm-hmm. the detective 
found a telephone number penciled on the rear cover. Oh. So there was a phone number on this book. Oh. Using a magnifying glass, he also dimly made out the faint impression of some other letters written in capitals underneath. Here, at least, was a solid clue to go on. Yeah. So the phone number on the back of the book was an unlisted number. So the dead guy or whoever owned this book got this number directly from the person or Mm -hmm. someone who knew the person because the number was unlisted. Yeah. This is juicy, right? How wild is this? How insane is this story? That's something else. Yeah. Um, Okay. And the phone number ended up belonging to a young nurse who lived near Somerton Beach, a five minute walk to where the body was found. Oh. That's who the phone number in the back of the book belonged to. Right. Okay. Okay. Like the two Glenelg men, she had never been publicly identified, which that was at the time of writing this article. She has been publicly identified now. Oh. Which we'll get into later. Okay. The South Australia police of 1949 were willing to protect witnesses embarrassed to be linked to the case. Okay. At the time. Now the two men who found the body, they were in the documentary. Hmm. Like, they, they're fine with it now. And she is now known only by her nickname, Justin. Je- Justine? I don't know. Justin. I'm going to say Justin. Okay. But that's not, we find out who she is later. Okay. Reluctantly, it seemed, perhaps because she was living with the man who had become her husband. Mm-hmm. Right now, this woman. Uh, the nurse admitted that she had indeed presented a copy of the Rubaiyat to a man she had known during the war. She gave the detectives his name, Alfred Boxel. Oh. At last, the police felt confident they had solved the mystery. Boxel surely was the unknown man. Within days, they traced his home to uh, Mar- Marabra. New South Wales. The problem was that Boxel turned out to be still alive. Oh, man. So this is a different copy of the Rubaiyat. So she gave a... Okay, wait. She, did she, she gave a different copy of the Rubaiyat to a different guy? Mm-hmm. But this other guy who had a copy of it, that's important, had her number written on the back of it. Uh-huh. So either this guy had the Rubaiyat, you know, met her at a bar, was like, hey, what's your number? Wrote it down on his copy of the Rubaiyat that he had. Because right. apparently a, mi- a ton of people had this book right, at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was really popular as like a gift and stuff. Or this woman gave him the Rubaiyat with her number on it. Right. And um, he, well, did, yeah. the, did this Boxel guy still have his copy that she had given him? Yes. Okay. Um, and he still had the copy of the Rubaiyat Jetson had given him. It bore the nurse's inscription, but was completely intact. The scrap of paper hidden in the dead man's pocket must have come from somewhere else, which the Rubaiyat that they actually right. had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she had to have known. Like, the thing is, she knew that this guy was still alive. Yeah. She knew... That she was sending them on a wild goose chase. Yeah. Because she knew this guy was alive. She knew that she didn't put her phone number on the back of this book and mm-hmm. then give it to this guy. You know? Yeah. So that's suspicious to me that she's like, well, I did have a copy of the Rubaiyat and I did give it to a guy. Yeah. Because, like, that had nothing to do with the case at hand. Right. Unless, well, I mean, I mean, they did. I, don't I mean, know. well, I mean, they would have asked her about if she gave a copy of a Rubaiyat to a guy. Yeah. 
I mean, okay. yeah. I, I don't think she's necessarily. It's. I mean, maybe I'll find out more to change my mind. But I think at this point, I'm like, she could. She's just telling them everything that she knows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. It might have helped if the South Australia police had felt able to question Jetson closely, but it is clear that they did not. The gentle probing that the nurse received did yield some intriguing bits of information. Interviewed again, she recalled that sometime the previous year, she could not be certain of the date, she had come home to be told by neighbors that an unknown man had called and asked for her. Mm. And confronted with the cast of the dead man's face, so this is this is weird. They they had her come to the station to look at the cast of the dead guy. Okay. To see if she knew him. And Apparently, Jetson seemed, Jeston seemed, quote, completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint, unquote. And apparently the guy who said this had to, like, get behind the woman because she like, was literally, they were like, she's gonna faint. Uh-huh. So she looked at this guy and literally almost fainted. Okay. Like, she got all weird. Uh-huh, weird. She seemed to recognize the man, yet firmly denied that he was anyone she knew. Because when I heard that, I'm like, well, I mean, she's seeing a cast of a dead man. That would be weird. That it would be. It would be. But there, the guy in the documentary who was there was like, I had to get behind her because we all thought she was going to, like, collapse onto the floor. She, like, got woozy. Right. So it wasn't just, oh, she looks kind of funny looking at that thing. It's like mm-hmm. she legit was like, holy fuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> but she said she didn't know the guy. Okay. All right, Justin. The book, examined under ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen. <gasps> so there's a fucking code in the back of this goddamn yes. book. How wild is this? This is, doesn't this just keep getting weirder and weirder? It's so cool. It's yes. so cool. Oh, okay. The second row had been crossed out, and the first three were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. It seemed that they were some sort of code. You can see the picture of it, but Looked I like wasn't to going you. to show you. Yeah, it, it's just like a bunch of jumbled letters. Some lowercase, some uppercase. Some were like crossed out. Mm-hmm. It is definitely like some code. That's a code for sure. Breaking a code from only a small fragment of text is exceedingly difficult, but the police did their best. Mm-hmm. They sent the message to Naval Intelligence, mm-hmm. home to the finest cipher experts in Australia, and allowed the message to be published in the press. Mm-hmm. So they even published this in the press to see if anyone could crack it. Right. This produced a frenzy of amateur code breaking, almost all of it worthless, and a message from the Navy concluding that the code appeared unbreakable. Hmm. Um, they came back with a statement that, that said, From the manner in which the lines have been represented as being set out in the original, it is evident that the end of each line indicates a break in sense. There is insufficient number or letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis, but the indications together with the acceptance of the the above breaks and sense indicate, insofar as can be seen, (laughs) that the letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code. Okay. The frequency of the occurrence of letters, whilst inconclusive, corresponds more favorably with the table of frequencies of initial letters of words in English than with any other table. Accordingly, a reasonable explanation could be that the lines are the initial letters of a verse of poetry or such like. Okay. And there, to all intents and purposes, the mystery rested. 
Okay. What so were they, they couldn't like? crack the code. Okay. Were they like, this seems like a, a professional's work, or they're like, this is some amateur code shit? They were like, Profe- I think they, they were, like, were like professional. This, this code guy knows what he's doing with mm-hmm. the code here. And we don't know what this code is. Mm-hmm. Isn't this weird as hell? Yeah. It and is. like, why? Why, if this man owned this Rubaiyat, why would he have this woman's phone, unlisted phone number in the back of the book? And she's just like, I don't know. Where did he get the number? Spies have ways of getting things. So you think of a spy. I think he, I think there's... This is totally a spy story. I mean, we don't know conclusively, but I'm like, this is a spy. This is a spy. He seems like a spy to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Let's see. The Australian police never cracked the code or identified the unknown man. Hmm. Justin died a few years ago without revealing why she seemed likely to faint when confronted with a likeness of a dead man's face. This was a few years ago as of when this article was written. It was a while ago. And when the South Australia coroner published the final results of his investigation in 1958, his report concluded with the admission, I am unable to say who the deceased was. I am unable to say how he died or what the cause of death. <laughs> they Not don't know anything. Not able to say much at no. all. So that he's dead. Okay. So that's the end of this chapter in this story. But are chapter. we ready for more? <laughs> if there's more, then let, <laughs> let me more. have it. Okay, so we're going to go into a little bit more about this Jestin character. No. We learn more about her. Oh, yeah, I was suspicious And why she's definitely connected to this guy. She's a spy, too. They're spy. Possibly. They're a spy couple. Okay, Harry, have you read this? Because these are theories. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> we'll get into it. We'll get into it's it. It's like the Americans. I know, that's so true. In recent years, though, the Tamim Shud case has begun to attract new attention. Amateur sleuths have probed at the loose ends left by the police, solving one or two minor mysteries, but often creating new ones in their stead. Steed? Stead. I don't know. Stead. And two especially persistent investigators, uh, retired Australian policeman Gary Feltis, author of the only book yet published on the case, and Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide, uh-huh. have made particularly useful progress. And they are currently still working on these case, this okay. case. Both freely admit they have not solved the mystery. First, the man the man's identity remains unknown. It is generally presumed that he was known to Je- to Justin mm-hmm. and may well have been the man who called at her apartment. But even if he was not, the nurse's shocked response when confronted with the body cast was telling. So those who argue against this theory point to the cause of the man's death. Mm-hmm. How credible is it, they say, that someone would commit suicide by dosing himself with a poison of Real rarity. Yes, I agree. Uh, Digitalis and even strophanathan, the the poisons, I don't know, (laughs) can be had from pharmacies, but never off the shelf. Both poisons are muscle relaxants used to treat heart disease. Uh, There has been persistent speculation that the dead man was a spy due to the circumstances and historical context of his death. So at least two sites relatively close to Adelaide were of interest to spies, the Radium Hill uranium mine and the Woomera Test Range, an Anglo-Australian military research facility. 
Yeah. The man's death also coincided with a reorganization of Australian security agencies, which would culminate the following year with the founding of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. Yeah. This would be followed by a crackdown on Soviet espionage in Australia, mm-hmm. which was revealed by intercepts of Soviet communications under the Venona Project. Did any of those communications say, we killed a guy and he doesn't know anything about it? And they don't know anything I, about it. I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay, 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 okay. The apparently exotic nature, nature of the death suggests to these theorists that the unknown man was possibly a spy. And I agree. Because in other spy cases where they think maybe this woman or man or person is a spy, all the tags are removed from their clothes Mm -hmm. and they all die in mysterious ways Mm -hmm. and they don't have any identification and their information can't be found in any systems because they're a freaking spy. Right. You know? Yeah. So he's totally a spy. We're all on that same page, right? he is a spy. He's a spy. Okay. Prove it. He's a spy. Alfred Boxel mm-hmm. had worked in intelligence during the war, and the unknown man, and the unknown man died after all on the onset of the Cold War. And at the time when the British rocket testing facility at Woomera, a few hundred miles from Adelaide, was one of the most secret bases in the world, mm. it was even it has even been suggested that poison was administered to him via his tobacco. Might this explain the mystery of why his army club pack contained seven Kensita cigarettes? It's Remember possible. that? Yeah. It's... How he had different cigarettes in his pack of it's... cigarettes? Yeah. So, so I guess they couldn't get the exact same ones for some reason. Maybe they were wrong about what kind he would have. Maybe mm-hmm. they were just, it was an oversight. But they knew enough to replace all of the cigarettes rather than just mm-hmm. one poison one. Or I guess they would have poisoned all of them so they Isn't... didn't have to wait for him to smoke the right one but like you could only tell what kind of cigarettes they are if you know a lot about cigarettes on the cigarette it doesn't really say what kind of si- like the guy probably wouldn't even recognize it maybe you know if they were swapped but maybe he knows a lot about cigarettes <laughs> maybe I mean, he smoked the cigarette that poisoned him mm-hmm. if it was i think that's a good theory that he smoked it that could be. Yeah. I mean, it, it was sure. in the cigarettes. Why were his Why cigarettes not? different? That's weird to me. It is okay. weird. Far-fetched as it seems, there are two more genuinely odd things about the mystery of the Tamim Shud that point away from anything so mundane as suicide. More. Okay. Tell me more. The first is apparent impossibility of locating an exact duplicate of the Rubaiyat handed in to the police in July 1949. Exhaustive inquiries by Gary Feltis at last tracked down a near-identical version with the same cover published by a New Zealand bookstore chain named Whitcomb and Tombs, but it was published in a squarer format. So, so, they, fa- so they couldn't find anywhere like an identical book. They could just find a kind of si- a similar one. That, that was- it seems this copy was trying to imitate. Interesting. Add to that one of Derek Abbott's leads, and the puzzle gets yet more peculiar. Abbott had discovered that at least one other man died in Australia after the war with a copy of the Rubaiyat poems next to him. Mm -hmm. The man's name was George Marshall, and he was a Jewish immigrant from Singapore, and his copy of the Rubaiyat was published in London Mm -hmm. by 
by Methuen, a seventh edition. So far, so not especially peculiar. Yeah. (laughs) But inquiries to the publisher and to libraries around the world suggest there were never more than five editions of Methuen's Rubaiyat, which Um. means that Marshall's seventh edition was a was as non-existent as the unknown man's Whitcomb and Tombs appears to be. Oh. Both of these rubaiyats found by these dead men never existed. Oh. I mean, and also, that's that's weird. What? Also, the rubaiyat would be a... I mean, since it was apparently a really popular book at the time, it would be a good <gasps> thing to have. I mean, it would be a nor- if you're using that for coding and stuff, that'd be a great thing to have with you. Doing a mm-hmm. book code... Isn't that crazy? Might the books have been used? Uh, might the books not have been used at all, but disguised spy gear of some sort? Say one-time code pads. Yeah, exactly. That's they what I was going to say. They use the ruba. They just mass produce these rubaiyats, mm-hmm. but they didn't do it right. Not, isn't that so weird? Yeah. The rubaiyats they owned were not real rubaiyats. <laughs> that is weird. They were never published. Like editions of the Rubaiyat. Don't you think that that's weird? So they, I, yeah, they must have been like code books. Is that okay? So do we think that is a a mistake on the part of the spy agency making them not quite right, like having these mistakes, or is that intentional so that they can like tell their Rubaiyat apart from other Rubaiyats? I don't know. It sounds like they tried to make it as close to the real thing as possible, though. Right. Yeah. I don't know. That I found the most compelling almost in this story. I'm like, wait, they couldn't even track down an identical... Like, these didn't exist. (laughs) Right. That's really weird. And there was a freaking code written in the back. Mm Mm-hmm. How weird is that? That's real weird. Ugh. I don't know. Okay, okay. (sighs) Okay, 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 okay. All right. Let's see. Which brings us... To the final mystery, mm-hmm. I think. I don't know. This could have just been copy and pasted. There's a lot more here, I think. And we're already at a one hour and nine minutes, but this story is good. <laughs> Going through the police file on the case, Jerry Feltis stumbled across a neglected piece of evidence. A statement given in 1950. Okay, so this is not the final piece of thing I'm pre- presenting you with, but um, by a man who had been on Somerton Beach that night. Okay. There on the evening that the unknown man expired the and walking toward the spot where his body was found, the witness, a police report stated, quote, saw a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge. He could not describe the man. Hmm. Okay, okay, okay. At this time, this did not seem that mysterious. The witness assumed he'd seen someone carrying a drunken friend. Looked at it in the cold light of day, though, it raises questions. It does raise questions. After all, none of the people who saw a man lying on the seafront earlier had noticed his face. Might he not have been the unknown man at all? Might the body found next morning have been the one seen on the stranger's shoulder? And, if so, might this conceivably suggest this real this really was a case involving spies and murder? Oh, wait, so this guy saw a guy carrying another guy after the other people had seen a guy <laughs> laying there? Are? I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, or I have this I on, like, the that? first page here. Hang on, hang on, okay. hang on. I, this is what I was, like, mm-hmm. trying to... 
I'm trying to find it. Hang on. Okay. Hang on. Talk to them some <laughs> Okay. So, I also have a thought about the... Uh... Okay, wait. This is all this says. Another witness came forward in 1959 and reported to the, to the police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Beach the night before the body was found. So, it was the night before the body was so found. So, the night before. It, <laughs> okay. And at some, some point the night before. We don't know if it was before or after the other people saw it. Yeah. I'm sure somebody knows, but yeah. they're not telling us. Mm-hmm. Okay. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say about his his high heel stuff. I'm guessing he was wore, wore as a spy. He wore disguises sometimes, or maybe quite yeah. often. Yeah, that's. So he, I was thinking the same thing earlier. Wore, I'm like, well, if he wears disguises a lot, maybe he disguises himself as a woman. Yeah, he's clean shaven, fit stuff. Yeah. Maybe he's maybe he frequently disguises himself as a as a lady. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he was has high high heel feet. So here's the final theory I will present to you today, which is a couple theories, but it all involves this mysterious nurse woman whose number was found in the back of this book. Yeah, okay. Who, at this point, every investigator in the freaking case, like, has a hunch that she is, that she knew the guy. Mm-hmm, okay. What else you got on her? So we're going to learn some more about her. Okay. But, so, final theory. Could the man have been having an affair with the Adelaide nurse? And could they have made a love child together? <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is wild. Oh, no, this computer is going to die. Uh-oh. Hang on. Go get my charger. Okay. Go get my charger. I'll pause it. Hang on, folks. Okay, we're back. And yes, I did say love child together. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yeah. No, 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 no. This is good. Okay. This is compelling. All right. Maybe. Okay. Quote, I'm not alone in believing she knew who the Somerton man was. I think just about every policeman involved in the case has the same opinion. And, unquote, Professor Abbott told Daily Mail Australia. He says, moreover, I believe it's likely that she had his child. Well, why does he think that? Mm -hmm. So Mr. Abbott believes the pair had a secret relationship due to the location of where the dead man's body was found and the fact that her phone number was scribbled on a piece of paper found in his pocket. Uh, or on the book. Sorry, that was miswritten. Okay. Um, and the number was unlisted. So, this mysterious woman, her name was Joe Thompson. Or Jess, Jessica. Okay. Both. She went by Joe. Okay. So she died in 2007 and denied knowing the Somerton man until her death. However, she conceded to friends in her later years that she was the nurse in this case. That okay. she was the nurse who was questioned. Okay. okay. Miss Thompson led an interesting life. Okay. She was considered a free spirit. She actually got pregnant with her first child before she got married. Okay. And it was not her current partner's child. She okay. kind of slept around. We'll say. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. No, I'm not saying we're just we're. She slept with men, a lot okay. of men. All right, good for Maybe her. Maybe not a lot of men, but she wasn't tied down. Uh, at least a couple. But the man she was dating at the time accepted this and offered to marry her and help raise her child together. So they got married and they raised this kid together. But it wasn't his kid, and ever like he knew it, she knew it, but not everyone. No one else really knew that that was the case. Okay. Um. Once she got pregnant, they were kind of like, let's get married so everyone thinks it's our kid mm -hmm. okay so her son 
was born, and his name is Robin. Okay. Um, and he was over a year old in 1948 when the Somerton man died. She mm-hmm. was single and did not get married until 1950. The list goes on. Wait, okay, I thought they got married. Well, she was... Uh, was she living with a guy or just... Yeah, she was living with the guy. And when he when they questioned her, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I don't know. Some of these details are weird, but, you know, we're, we're going to go with... <laughs> okay. She had a kid, not with her husband. Right. There we go. Um, there are a number of factors. Uh, she would have fallen pregnant to the Somerton man in September or October of 1946. Mr. Abbott cites the striking similarities between the Somerton man and the Joe Tom- and Joe Thompson's child. Mm-hmm. They both had a genetically inherited tooth pattern, and neither because neither of them had their incisor teeth, uh-huh. and it's a rare tooth thing that's only genetically inherited so he would have had to get it from the mom joe had her incisor teeth so the dad wouldn't have okay or like someone's grandfather interesting okay um and they both had the same but very rare ear canal uh shape thing Uh going on the upper hollow called the simba is was unusually deep and enlarged in both the kid and the Somerton man, they have like the same ear canal, but it's like a rare thing where like there's uh-huh. a weird. De- so they had two genetically rare things uh-huh. um, in common. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, and you have to think this guy had her number, so right. they knew each other. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. And so isn't that that should be proof enough? Another theory suggesting the Somerton man may be Mr. Thompson's father was his muscular legs, similar to those a ballet dancer would have. Mr. Thompson, or the son, mm-hmm. went on to perform with the Australian Ballet and Royal New Zealand Ballet. He was a traveling ballet dancer, professional dancer. I don't think... He had, became a ballet dancer, Harry. I, I don't think that's genetic. I don't okay, think well. ballet dancing is a genetic trait. But maybe it is. I guess, I mean, maybe particularly muscular legs could be passed down. Maybe she knew this guy was a ballet dancer. So then she was like, how about we get your little kid into ballet? (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Some believe this is proof he was a spy or double agent that was executed. And possibly that Miss Thompson may have also been a spy. So I do believe that they knew each other. I believe they probably had some kind of affair going on because it sounds like the kid and the kid looks just like this dead guy. Maybe she killed him. Yeah. Because he was. That could also be possible. So. Didn't want him to be the father of her kid. Well, if they're both spies, they weren't supposed to be together. Mm. So he would have been executed if they were both spies. Okay. Um, But also. I think. They had a kid together. I'm convinced. Well, I'm convinced they knew each other at least and had like a little affair. Okay. Okay. In November 2013, relatives of Joe Thompson gave interviews on 60 Minutes. Uh Kate Thompson, the daughter of Joe Thompson and Prosper Thompson, Uh said that her mother was the woman interviewed by the police and that her mother had told her that she had lied to the police. Joe did know the identity of the Somerton man, and his identity was also, quote, known to a le- level higher than the police force. 
unquote. Her father had died in 1995 and her mother had died in 2007. Kate Thompson suggested that her mother and the Somerton man may both have been spies, noting that Joe Thompson taught English to Russian migrants. Migrants. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was interested in communism and spoke fluent Russian, although she would never disclose to her daughter where she learned it or why. And the daughter said sometimes she would just hear her mom on the phone at night like talking to someone low in like Russian and then when she'd be like why are you speaking Russian she'd be like go back to bed oh man it's just like the Americans Harry isn't that weird (laughs) that is weird why did she speak Russian and why did she teach Russian she was a freaking spy (laughs) sure yeah I mean there's you, you know I mean a lot of people who aren't spies teach and speak Russian, I think. I I assume they're not all But she also knew the identity of the Somerton man and said that his identity was known to a level higher than the police force. Mm -hmm. And she admitted to knowing this guy. Yeah, I I mean, I'm... uh, Do you think they had a kid now? It's possible. I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, it seems possible. However, Mr. Abbott dismissed the Hollywood-style theories. Quote, I would be surprised if if they turned out to be true. Unquote. Okay. I think this is a love story, not a spy one, and one jilted of love. Anything is possible, but I don't find the spy scenario plausible, which I think is dumb. If you think they made a love child together, why couldn't she be a spy? Yeah. He doesn't think either of them are spies. And I'm like, no, 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 no. He's a spy. Who cares about these people if they're not spies? No, no, he's a spy. Yeah, he's a spy. Why is there a code in the back of this non-existent book and he has no tags on his clothes and he has Keen written all over the place with no right spelling? What? He has no ID, no wallet, nothing. And he has poison in him. Harry, he's a freaking spy. I think he's a spy. I know. (sighs) Okay. Mr. Abbott uh, said DNA testing could be done to help finally shed light on the mystery. Quote, if we want to establish that a descendant of Robin is uh, related to the Somerton man, this could be done by extracting the Somerton man's man's DNA after an exhumation and comparing the two, he said. If we want to identify the Somerton man himself, this is a different issue. Uh, The way we would do that is find descendants of his of his cousins by putting the DNA data on the genealogical DNA database. Mm -hmm. Database. Whatever. We could then trace those cousins back to a common ancestor and then work forward to find the Somerton man. We know this works because this is exactly the technique used by genealogists who specialize in finding an adopted child's real parents. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is also a petition asking South Australia's Attorney General to have the Somerton man exhumed. Okay. To figure out who this guy was. So those are all all of the theories. Uh-huh. Um, what do you think? Do you think they could have had a kid together? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think he's a spy. I think That's he's like a spy. definitely... I think she could be a spy or she could have just gotten involved with this guy and then she's like, oh, God, he was a spy and now he's dead. And she's like, oh, my God, I can't be with you. You know. Yeah. I think they were in love. I think they knew each other. Okay. Yeah, probably. Do you think they knew each other? How did he have her phone number? Okay. I mean, a spy can get a person's phone number. But I'm just saying. That's also true. But why? 
I don't. Maybe she. Well, she was a nurse. Maybe she. She had an in with someone who worked at one of these That's testing true. sites. Uh, the the. If he's a spy, mine. He he would know how to get someone's phone number. So mm. maybe she didn't know this guy, but I'm gonna assume she did. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, she admitted to knowing, or the daughter says she admitted to knowing the guy mm-hmm. and said she would never tell anyone. Like, oh no, I'm not saying I know the guy, but I know the guy. I'm not gonna tell anyone I know the guy, but I know the guy. Right. That's sketchy, right? Mm-hmm. We all know she knew the guy. So, a little fun part of this story that I'm going to end with, okay? Yeah. So, Rachel Egan is Robin Thompson's daughter. So, Robin Thompson is Joe Thompson's mm-hmm. kid, son. okay? Mm-hmm. Or son, who we think, who they, some people think, had an affair. So, Joe Summerton Man had a baby named Robin and now Robin has a kid named Rachel. Okay. Okay. Yes, that's right. Which means if Derek Abbott's theory is correct, she is the Summerton man's granddaughter. That would that if would follow. If the theory is correct, that would be the Summerton's right. grand. Not that Rachel knew anything about this while she was growing up. As a baby, she'd been put up for adoption by her parents, Robin and Roma. Quote, I grew up not knowing I was adopted. However, there were many aspects of me and my adopted family that were very different. I always had a passion for ballet and dance and theater, and I always wondered where that came from. Maybe ballet is genetic. (laughs) I mean, you have an athletic build. You have a nice body. Like, you're Mm -hmm. able to be a dancer. You could pass those athletic traits on to someone, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And if Joe knew the guy, she'd be like, well, he was a good dancer. He was a ballet dancer. Let's let's get him into ballet. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, then when Rachel was in her 20s, her mother, Roma, made contact with her. Mm-hmm. She explained she had been a dancer with the Australian ballet and had fallen pregnant with Rachel while dancing in New Zealand. So Robin and his wife were both ballet dancers. Mm-hmm. Um, Once reconnected, Rachel moved to Brisbane to be closer to her mother, which is where Derek Abbott tracked her down. So Derek Abbott wanted to find this woman Mm -hmm. so he could, like, test her DNA against some hairs they found in the cast. Okay. I haven't done it yet, I don't think. But um, he wanted to track this lady down also to see if she had any of the similar traits, like the missing incisors in the ear. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... So he sent her a letter about the Summerton man. Mm -hmm. And while at first they discussed the case, they soon started talking about their own lives. Quote, it turned out that we had a lot of similarities with our upbringings. Like me, he wasn't planned. And his parents were quite young and they were students, Rachel said. And uh, so Derek and Rachel arranged to meet. uh, Rachel said, we collected him from the airport and spent a few days together looking at photos and sharing information. That's what Rachel said. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't all business. By the end of the weekend, Derek had proposed to Rachel. And now they are happily married with three children who all do ballet. (laughs) They're like happily married now. This guy tracked down this woman to see her like teeth Uh and get her DNA. And he was like, hey, can I get your DNA? And she was like, I thought it was a little weird that he was asking for my DNA. (laughs) But, uh, and apparently she's missing her incisor teeth. So she has like the same genetic thingy. But Uh like, obviously if Robin had it, she would also have. Anyway, they fell in love after that weekend and they're really cute together. And they have like kids and they're very happy and they're like, yeah, we want to know if this guy was my granddad, you know? And they're uh-huh. just like, let's get the body exam so we can test the DNA, you know? Yeah. And now they're like, yeah, 
And in the documentary, in one of the documentaries I watched, yeah, they were like, they showed their kids like doing ballet classes. They're like little, but they all dance. <laughs> and it's just, I thought that was a cute story. They fell in love. That is The cute. investigator, the current yeah. investigator of this and the woman who might be the descendant of the Somerton man yeah. are now married. That's very How cute. How cute is that? That's very cute. That's really cute. Mm -hmm. Well, I heard, you know, they got married. They fell in love and got married. And then I heard, which I was like, that's adorable. Uh -huh. Then I heard after three days he proposed. <laughs> but apparently weird. they were both like, they really liked each other. And they're like, let's get married. And now they're like really happily married, apparently. Oh. That's what they say on TV, at least. Okay. And in interviews. It's not just, he's not just doing a long con to get her DNA. I mean, they have a bunch of kids, so. Okay. Well, but that's just more DNA to test. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's running a DNA farm over there. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was cute, so I wanted to end with it. So That is cute. What a story, huh? Yeah. Isn't that wild? Mm-hmm. That's twists quite wild. and turns. Twists, twists, and turns. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? It is. It's pretty cool. Do you like that story? Yeah, I hope he's a spy. He's to Harry, he's totally a spy. Yeah, he is. We all know he's a spy. Were they having an affair? Were they both spies? I don't know. But all I know is that he was definitely a spy. Yeah. Yeah. He was a spy. I'm really into spy stories. I, I, I know. They're cool. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Mm hmm Well, there's another case of this lady mm -hmm. whose, like, front of her body was, like, just caught, caught on fire. Mm -hmm. And then they found the body and she had, like, a bunch of pills in her system. And then they found that all of her the tags of her clothes were... You know, mm -hmm. all neatly cut out. And then they found like a suitcase of hers somewhere and there was a bunch of wigs in there. And then all of the tags have been cut off of everything. So everyone thinks she's a spy. That's like a common thing. Yeah. They uh -huh. were pretty much like, this woman's a spy. Whether she killed herself or someone killed her. Right. You know, but she's a spy. Like all the, she had a bunch of wigs and mm -hmm. her things were, her tags were all cut off. So that's a very common thing in spy stories where they think they might be spies, that all of, they have no identification, no ID, no wallet, and then all of the tags are cut off in their clothes. Mm -hmm. So you can't track them. Right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. he's definitely a spy. Yeah, he is. Mm -hmm. yeah, he had a code in the back of his fake Rubaiyat. <laughs> yeah, that's really. That's... Weird as hell. And someone else died with the fake Rubaiyat next to them. What? Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. I don't know. There's just, when you think you know something, there's just weirder things. Like, why did he tear out the end of that book and stick it in his pants? Or maybe why did he, the murderer do that? Or maybe, who got who discarded this book? Maybe he knew he was going to die. Maybe he knew he was going to get murdered. Oh, shit. That's probably, he probably knew something was up. So he's like, get rid of the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know why he threw it in the back of someone's car and just not a trash can. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It's like, like he wanted it to be found. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he... Maybe yeah. he was like, here's this. I'm going to tear this out. Maybe he's like, I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. He tore a piece out, put it in his pants, and then he threw the book in the back of someone's car hoping that someone would put it together. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Say so like, okay. Yeah. And then find the killer. Mm-hmm. Weird. Why did he have Joe's number? Because he know. knew her. Could be. He knew her. Could be. Okay, this is long. It Are is. we ready to go? I think so. I think we're ready to Any go. Any final thoughts? I don't know. Uh, no, I don't think so. Cool. That's that's the end. Um, Great. Yeah, okay, cool. 
We'll be okay. back next week with more stuff to talk about. Okay. I've been Harry. I'm still Carly. And this has been... Known Unknowns. We just wiped out Tomato Town. Because it's weird out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.